In partnership with 2SER, the Walkley Talks podcast presents the latest episode of For the State, a weekly program about the media featuring Australia's leading journalists. Broadcast live each Monday at 6.30pm on 2SER 107.3. Yes, it's For the State for the week beginning Monday the 20th of April. Live on 2SER Radio and across the community radio network, this is your weekly look at the world of journalism and the media. My name's Jack Fisher. Tonight joining us, Michael Bodie, media and film writer at The Australian. Hi, Michael. We've also got Chris Graham, editor of New Matilda. Hi, Chris. Hi, Jack. And Chris Berg, research fellow at the Institute of Public Affairs and columnist with ABC's The Drum. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me. Very welcome. Now, as always, if you've got something to say about what we're discussing tonight, you can get in touch via Twitter. Our handle is AU or let us know numbers. Now, over the weekend, SBS sport presenter Scott McIntyre posted five tweets on Saturday afternoon on the legacy of the Anzacs. Here's what he wrote. The cultivation of an imperialist invasion of a foreign nation that Australia had no quarrel with is against all ideals of modern society. Wonder if the poorly read, largely white nationalist drinkers and gamblers pause today to consider the horror that all mankind suffered. Remembering the summary execution, widespread rape and theft committed by those brave Anzacs in Egypt, Palestine and Japan, not forgetting that the largest single-day terrorist attacks in history were committed by this nation and their allies in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Well, the calls for McIntyre's sacking and even deportation were swift. The hashtag SackScottMcIntyre was begun and by 9pm that evening, the Communications Minister Malcolm Turnbull had weighed in, saying he found it difficult to think of more offensive or inappropriate comments. SBS Managing Director Michael Abade also denounced the comments at the same time, and by midday the next day, SBS announced that Scott McIntyre's employment at SBS had been terminated. There's now been a petition launched today on change.org to have his employment reinstated. Michael... Malcolm Turnbull tweeted that it's difficult to think of more offensive tweets than those by Scott McIntyre. Is it in fact difficult? As a large white drinker? Uh, uh, no, it's definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> I, I could think of far more offensive stuff. Um, and uh, this was just, this sort of ranked in the, uh, you're on Twitter, you see someone be a doofus and you move on. I, I'm sort of a bit flummoxed by the, uh, well, no, the timing was particularly insensitive. You've got to grant that. Um, and his facts weren't entirely correct, but uh, in the greater scheme of things, I, I've got to be. I've got to say, I'm more horrified by down in Melbourne at the moment. You've got an AFL coach who's biffed a, a, an opposition supporter, and the footy media is getting right in behind the coach, saying, "Of course, that was exactly what he should have done." Yeah. And I, I just find that a bit more abhorrent than words that were just clumsy, uh, possibly drunken, and you know, you just move on. Chris Berg, just how offensive were these comments? Look, look I, I think they were offensive and, and the, the broad brush um, criticism of all Anzacs as potential war criminals is, is obviously offensive and it was a sensitive time as well, but it's turned into something more than that. It's turned into a, um, a proxy, it appears, for the entire discussion about Anzac Day and, um, and the role of uh, the Anzacs in the Australian national consciousness as well. And I think when we discuss um, uh, the consequences of his tweets and, and the way it played out, I think it's very hard for a lot of people to get away from um, their views on Anzac in general, um, rather, than, rather than talking about it as a, you know, an employment law thing or, or even just a free speech issue. Chris Graham, 
I think what he's given voice to here is a sense of discomfort, which a lot of Australians perhaps feel around the jingoism. But to be clear, he's accused Australian soldiers 100 years ago of having been thieves and rapists. Do you think those who've come to his defence have perhaps sanitised those comments a little bit? Oh, look, maybe some have. I, I haven't. I I do think there were some rapists and thieves among the Anzacs. I don't think that was the norm, though. Um but that's war. War's an appalling thing, and I think that's the point, however clumsily he made it, that he was trying to make. And and that's the problem with offence. I wasn't offended by what he said. I, I am frustrated, like many others, with the, as he puts it, the cultification of, of Anzac. I think it glorifies war too much, and I think we've built a bit of a myth on it. But I wasn't offended by it. I, I was offended by Miranda Devine's tweet on Saturday uh, on um, jazz hands in relation to David Pocock. I thought that was quite offensive, but I don't think she should be sacked for it. Now, Fairfax Media's Michael Strom has tweeted, Imagine if Russia's communications minister rebuked a journo for criticising hypocrisy around military commemorations, and then that journo was then sacked. Michael, wouldn't that erase alarm bells for many? I, I was surprised that the communications minister even commented on something sort of trivial and not... It was going to get dealt with without him weighing in. And he's weighing in in a particularly sensitive time in uh, the sort of relationship between him and the public broadcasters. So SBS has not only survived some huge cuts and argy-bargy last year with the federal government, they're now trying to get um, an increase to their advertising. And the managing director, of uh, they're trying to get that through parliament. And the managing director, uh, Michael Abede, is got to make nice with the communications minister and has been doing so for more than 12 months. So I think all that sort of subtext to it's just confused it a bit and made it a bit more, uh, I wouldn't use the word nefarious, but more interesting than perhaps uh, it otherwise should have been. But I, I just don't think the communications minister really should have been bothering with stuff like that when he's got matters of real consequence that can change things that he's got to look after. Like an NBN or a copper uh, wires. Precisely. Chris Graham, just how problematic do you think those comments by Malcolm Turnbull were in the context of it all? Oh, look, it, it obviously added fuel to the fire. Ironically, if you believe in in uh, uh, Scott's free speech, you believe in Malcolm's free speech, but uh, it's free speech from a minister, which obviously has a, a much greater effect. I tend to agree with Michael. I, I don't think it's something that the communications minister really should be, should have bothered expressing of you publicly, but it when he did, it went uh, ballistic. I... I, I think it may. I, I think he highlighted it. If someone else had highlighted it, it may well have caught fire as well. But uh, it was Anzac Day after all. Chris Burke, what do you think about uh, Malcolm Turnbull weighing in on this one? Look, I don't see that there was anything wrong with Malcolm Turnbull weighing in on it. And if there hadn't been the the, the follow up, and if the guy hadn't been sacked, then we wouldn't have thought a word about it. In fact, you could argue that if the minister finds something offensive that's been done by an agency within his portfolio, he has a responsibility to follow it up. How that gets played out is a decision of the SBS's much-vaunted independence. Now, I'm not at all convinced that the reason he was sacked was because Malcolm Turnbull um, uh, raised the issue. There are reports today that the reason he was sacked is because when asked to apologise and recant what he say, he flat-out refused. Now, that, that is a matter between him and SBS. There's no suggestion, no suggestion at all 
that the communications minister asked him for uh, asked him to be sacked, and I'm sure defenders of SBS independence would be horrified to believe that that was what happened. So the minister makes communication with the managing director of SBS late on a Saturday night, drawing his attention to someone's tweets, and you're saying that the SBS is so independent that it would act of its own volition after that? Uh, I mean, the connection between Nonsense, nonsense. I, I'm, I'm not suggesting anything of the sort. What I am suggesting is that the responsibility for sacking an employer of SBS ultimately rests with SBS That's itself. almost word for word now, what the communications what minister said today. <laughs> and, you know, as we said before, SBS is under immense pressure commercially and politically at the moment. And the communications minister made contact with the managing director on Saturday night about this issue. There was no other way it was going to play out. They couldn't even wait till Monday morning to get rid of McIntyre. I think it's. I think it's clear from from what happened that that Malcolm Turnbull's role played a factor in uh, in his sacking. I don't think there's any doubt, really, any doubt in anybody. If you're going to be reasonable about the debate, I think you have to accept Turnbull played a pretty significant role. And I don't think it would have played out any differently if he didn't play a role. I think SBS probably would have dumped him. Um, but nevertheless, he's mm. he's muddied the water significantly. Okay, well, Channel 10's Hugh Rimmington, who is on the board of veteran support organisation Soldier On, well, he tweeted, wrong call, Michael Abade, who is the uh, SBS mm. managing director. You had options other than to sack him. Michael, what were those options? Well, I haven't investigated the SBS employment policy, but look, the I don't think he was sacked because he re- didn't recant. And the tweets are still up there. And McIntyre, I mm. think, is not resiling from what he said. And I think he wants people to, dis- to discuss what he said. But SBS has explicitly stated that he's been terminated, his employment's been terminated because he's uh, broken the code of conduct at SBS, brought SBS into disrepute, and also broken the social media policy. So that's pretty straight up. Now, whether the process for employment contracts at SBS allows him to be summarily dismissed, I don't know. Um, I suspect McIntyre is getting a lot of advice and seeking a lot of advice, and I think it'll be an ongoing issue as to whether he uh, takes it to a tribunal this week or not. Or summarily executed, for that matter. Hugh Remington also wrote that while Scott McIntyre's tweets were untimely, immature, he said, and in one case offensively wrong, lest we forget our diggers also died for free speech. Chris Berg, is this a free speech issue if someone's job is being threatened for what they've said online? No, I don't think it is. Now, that's not to say that I think that sacking him was the right idea. I think that we can at the same time say that it's not strictly a free speech issue, it's a issue of contract, but it, that it was the wrong thing to do. Now, I do think that, that barring any hints of discussions that were had on Sunday morning, I do think that sacking someone for a series of ill-advised and even offensive tweets is the wrong thing to do, particularly in this context where there's no suggestion that, that there was any, any deeper issue with his employment. But, um, uh, but, but I'm not convinced that it's a strictly freedom of speech issue. It is a matter of contracts, and SBS has a right to manage its um, employees and, and to, to manage the profile of what are one of its more highly prominent employees, a soccer commentator. Well, Chris, can I ask you then, when, when Andrew Bolt wrote what he wrote uh, about Aboriginal people and found himself uh, 
in violation of the law. Was that a matter of free speech? Yeah, absolutely, because we're talking about really? two totally separate things. Yeah. So, so a guy... Talk, no, no, hold on. Bear with me. If you ask me a question, you'd really would like the answer, presumably. Well, you gave it, far away. What, <laughs> what we're talking about are two totally separate responses, one of which is action in the federal court, the other is the um, end of a contract that they both agreed to. The Racial Discrimination Act and voluntarily entered into contracts are totally, totally different. He is very, very free to go about and say whatever he wants about the ANZACs, but not in the employ of an organisation that requires him not to say such things or say specifically offensive things. But we're talking There's about the automatic confirmation. It's automatic confirmation between contract law and political freedom of speech principles and the law. We're talking about the Racial Discrimination Act. I think is a is a deliberate muddying of the waters so, by people who just want to run political agendas and rather than talk about serious legislative change. But someone can tweet about Anzac Day and uh, a journalist and lose their job, but another journalist can breach the law and write offensively about Aboriginal people, and that's a matter of free speech. They're this, exactly the same principle. No, not in the Broadly, they are. Broadly, no, no, when you no, expand no, it, they are. No, no, not at all. Not at all. We're talking about legal constraints versus voluntary cho- contracts voluntarily entered into. They are totally different things. When you and I incorporate to set up an organisation that has one standard of responsibility or one standard of conduct, if, someone, if either one of us breaches that conduct, we are perfectly legitimate to be excluded from that contract. The Racial Discrimination Act isn't like an individual contract. It is totally different. Okay. Now, it's interesting that in their statement on the matter, SBS apologised for the offence and even harm caused by McIntyre's tweets. And in the same breath, they chose to defend their support for the Anzacs and all the amount of time and effort that they'd given over to the Anzac centenary coverage. Michael, all the networks have obviously made a big thing out of celebrating, well, marking this and covering this centenary. How much do you think that pressure would have contributed to his swift dismissal? I, I don't think there was any pressure. I think just what he said was a bit sort of ridiculous and totally okay. insensitive at that time. I don't think um, just because it was the 100th anniversary, um, which people embraced on the day. It was funny that all the TV previously hadn't really worked, hadn't rated well, but on the day, the ABC and others got some huge ratings. I find it interesting that he's... The ABC had its own documentary, Lest We Forget What, on Wednesday night, I think, um, presented by Kate Orbison. And it sort of discussed the the mythology of Anzac Day and Gallipoli in a somewhat naive way, but it sort of raised some contentious points and went through straight through the keeper and no one sort of really followed on, which was interesting. But um, no, I don't think there was any pressure. I think this is just one instance of someone being a bit uh, untimely and insensitive and uh, an organisation acting. And I think there's, there is a difference in some degree between him working for a public organisation and Bolt working for a private company. Um, his employer, which is essentially my employer, will argue um, it lives with the consequences of whatever he says and when it's unhappy it doesn't employ him anymore as long as he... So I think there's a public trust that employers at the ABC and SBS have that commercial organisations might argue that they still have it, but they are also, they live and die by their revenues. I think your organisation should, based on public trust as well, 
but we do have. I do. I know we do have it. But well, I think the there standards is, yeah. should be the same. Yes, and that's an ongoing. It'll be arguable stretch right. forever. Yeah. Let's move on because I want to get to this really interesting topic, which I think has come out out of this whole thing, which is about journalists' Twitter accounts and profiles. Now, the MEAA, the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance, has said that while journalists are now being required to use social media to promote their work and for their employers' marketing purposes, social media policies of employers are inflexible and deny staff the right to have and express a personal opinion. Chris Graham, what should a journalist's Twitter feed really be? It should be the personal views of the journalists. And if the employer's uh, asking that journalist to tweet about things he's done it should include that as well but i don't think you can beat a journalist or any individual up for tweeting their personal view i I understand chris berg's point about uh, contracts being contracts but um if a media organization is going to exploit a journalist's uh personality and and his or her twitter account for their own personal gain it has to be a two-way street Michael Bodie, what should a journalist's Twitter feed be? I agree. I, I don't think you even need a social media policy. You know. Okay. I mean, it's just don't be an idiot. Yeah, and, that's yeah. Point. <laughs> yeah but that is the policy. Um, so, well, yeah. you know, and I'm employed for my personality and my opinions and my news. And, and I think that's the interesting point now is that journalists aren't objective, um, passive observers of uh, what is happening and what they're reporting. Um, and I think a lot of people aren't ready for getting out into the public space. There's plenty of journos who just aren't good at it, yeah. expressing their opinions. So, look, and, I, and, you know, I think it's beholden upon some media organisations to perhaps train a bit better in uh, the ethics and the values and the uh, you know, whys and wherefores of how to do it rather than the technical aspects of it. You're on Fourth Estate. My guest tonight, Chris Berg uh, from the Institute of Public Affairs, Chris Graham from New Matilda, and Michael Bodie from The Australian. Now, the Australian media watchdog has finally released its report into Today FM's infamous royal prank call, and it's found that Today FM breached a condition of its broadcast licence. You'll remember in 2012 when Today FM hosts called the hospital where Duchess of Cambridge Kate Middleton was being treated for morning sickness. Pretending to be the Queen and Prince Philip, the radio hosts tricked two nurses into speaking on Middleton's condition and the secret recording of the prank call went to air shortly after one nurse took her own life. Now, the ACMA, the Australian Media and Communications Authority, has found that Today FM was in breach of rules that prohibit the broadcast of statements by identifiable persons without their consent, and which also prohibit participants in live-hosted entertainment programs from being treated in a highly demeaning or exploitative manner. I spoke a little earlier to Australia's foremost media law expert, Mark Pearson. Here's what he had to say. As far as its punishment goes, it now has to decide what amongst quite an extensive suite of sanctions it has available, which sanction it will apply. So in the past, it's been criticised a lot for basically hitting networks over the fingers, uh, wrapping them over the knuckles with a feather rather than any, any severe punishment. So it'll be very interesting to see what they actually decide in this case. Indeed it will. Michael Bodie. Today FM fought tooth and nail to have this report kept undercover. Is the station still not taking full responsibility for the call that went to air? Uh, They've been protecting, on behalf of the commercial radio industry, a few possible precedents. Uh, Their biggest beef in the most recent legal challenge was the ACMA made a judgment that they'd breached the Surveillance Act. Um, 
which suggests that they have made, done a criminal act. And uh, the radio industry is basically saying, hang on, ACMA, you can't, that's for the cops to decide. And the police have subsequently decided that they did not breach the Surveillance Act. So there was a, there's been a lot of argy-bargy over that um, because it did open a can of worms. If, But I think, um, look, again, we're in a sort of weirdly political environment where the ACMA has to... As your um, guest just, as Mark just said, has to do something because they've let Today FM and particularly the Kyle Sandiland show off for so long. Not that this is Sandilands, but you really feel as though they've been waiting to whack Today um, for a long time, and they've finally found a, a means with which, or, or a case in which they can do it. And I, but I think it'll be a pretty, again, I think it'll be pretty toothless. I mean, if you look at Today FM. They're last in Sydney. They're an absolute basket case at the moment. So ACMA was looking at shutting them, taking their licence off them for a few hours. They'd do that in the middle of the day. You know, today if anyone lose $30 basically for the advertising <laughs> for a couple of hours, they'll, they'll institute another broadcast uh, licence condition. I just don't see that there's anything that they're really going to do, but they're making a song and dance because they think they uh, should and can. Well, yes. So no commercial Australian television or radio station has had its license cancelled or suspended in the past. ACMA has not ruled out suspending Today FM for a number of hours. Um, Chris Berg, would would this amount to anything more than a slap on the wrist, do you think? Look, I'll just pick you up on that. Um, Back in the 1920s, they actually suspended radio broadcasters um, for political reasons. I stand corrected. Labour Party broadcasters that... um, uh, uh, will we'll pull down. But no, I mean, it, it's not going to be much of a slap on the wrist, and, it, and nor should it be. I mean, we've just had this long conversation about freedom of speech. Now we're talking about the possibility that a government regulator would pull a radio station off the air because it believes that it breached a ethical or moral code. Now, I, 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 I have no interest in defending the actions of um, Today FM, and I think what they did was, was, was very, very questionable and very problematic, but the idea that people would be braying for some sort of punishment to um, uh, free radio broadcasting, I think, is, is really abhorrent and really, really dangerous and ultimately very scary, particularly if what's happening is, is ACMA just going for a scalp just because it sees some sort of weakness yeah. in order to get revenge on Carl Sanderlands. I think that's really problematic. Yeah, Chris Graham? Yeah, look, I've struggled with this story from day one. I I think it's a terrible tragedy, but I must admit uh, I never saw at the time that what they were doing uh, was bullying and I never saw that it would have... No one really saw that it could have the outcome it had until it had. I mean, some people, of course, have warned of it, but I, I feel very sorry for, for the broadcasters. I don't think uh, if they suspend Today FM for a few hours on Sydney Radio, I think we'll all dance a jig, but for other reasons. I mean, I just think the whole thing's... Um, I think the whole thing's a, a tragedy and I think it's being exploited now to some extent, but, you know, uh, life goes on. And right. Sydney Radio, without Today FM for three hours, I think we'll all survive. I think we will. You're on Fourth Estate. My name's Jack Fisher, talking to Chris Graham of New Matilda, Michael Bodie of The Australian, and Chris Berg from the Institute of Public Affairs. Now, last week, the ABC launched Charlie Pickering's new show, The Weekly. It's aimed at bringing in a new audience of younger viewers and very clearly models itself on some of the new satire staples out of the US, such as The Daily Show and John Oliver's Last Week Tonight. Very much in the style of Oliver, The Weekly featured a long explainer monologue to address the topic of internet piracy. 
Michael Bodie, is the weekly trying too hard to be John Oliver's last week tonight, or Australia's Daily Show for that matter? I was, I was just disappointed that he's been given this 20-week run and this is the most shameless rip-off of American comedy since... Well, it's the most shameless since rip-off of comedy since the BBC ripped off John Clark's The Games. And before that, since um, Steve Visor ripped, ripped off Letterman back in the yeah. old, old and black and white days when I was growing up. But I, it was just a lost opportunity. And it was so... So, such a rip-off on even the theme music was almost like it had been ripped off from Bill Maher's show. I just, I thought, there's got to be a better way. And if I want the new satire, you know, we're getting the best of the best of the world at the moment from the US. I mean, we've had this, I hesitate to use the term golden age, but I mean, Stephen Colbert is probably as good as there ever will be at that, at that game. Jon Stewart is not bad. Um... And I just thought they they've got good comedians there. They've got some bucks. They've got to do something. They've got to come up with something original. Chris Graham, part of the new satire genre is to lampoon the news genre itself. Yeah. Is there anything these shows do any better than something such as Frontline? Oh well, look, they're based on the truth, <laughs> even though I would argue strongly so was Frontline. <laughs> but they're based on factual day-to-day events. I I happen to love uh, the Daily Show. I love Colbert as well, but I love The Daily Show even more, and I'm less a fan of John Oliver. I know I'm in the minority there, um, although I still think John Oliver is fantastic, and I also happen to be a huge Charlie Pickering fan. So I must admit, I haven't seen the show yet. Um, I'm not a consumer of television, if I'd be honest, but I will make an effort to watch it, and uh, I, I, I take Michael's comments on board. I think if they've ripped off the format so closely, that's a bit problematic, but I do think... Australia is ripe for this sort of format. I think we need to uh, make it a bit more local and give it a bit more uh, originality. But I, I think it is a fantastic way to get uh, news across to a, a younger audience that disengages from news. And really quickly, Michael, you wrote that ABC's recent black comedy had an edge that The Weekly might not. Hmm. Does a show like The Weekly really challenge its audience at all or does it just reassure them, as some have said of The Daily Show? Yeah, I, I think it does reassure in some respects. and uh, In a way, it's a bit unfair to compare those two comedies because they're totally different in what their mission is. Um, Charlie's mission, or the weekly's mission, is to get a big audience on a Wednesday night and try and relive the grand old Spicks and Specs days for the ABC. Something like Black Comedy is about breeding a whole new batch of comedians yep. from the Indigenous community. So that was a bit glib, that comparison. Okay, that's it from us on Fourth Estate this week. Uh, don't forget you can check out all of our podcasts on the 2SER website. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Thank you to our guests, Michael Bodie from The Australian, Chris Graham no from New Matilda, and Chris Berg from the Institute of Public Affairs. My name's Jack Fisher. We'll be back at the same time next week. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of 2SER's Fourth Estate. Fourth Estate can be heard live each Monday at 6.30pm on 2SER 107.3 and at 2SER.com. Check out the program description for links to follow 2SER and Fourth Estate. You can subscribe to Walkley Talks on iTunes and follow the Walkleys on Twitter and Facebook to be the first to know about upcoming Walkleys news and events. 